Hello and welcome to this edition of Back to the Bible. Now, today we wrap up week two of our four-week series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, with a message titled, The Marvelous Fisherman. So, please join us in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through to 11, as we join Dr. John Newfeld for today's study. the years I spent as a pastor, I never pretended to know more about the professions of people in my church than they did. You know, I've ministered to medical doctors, nurses, lawyers, to engineers and architects, to police officers, firefighters, plumbers, electricians, farmers, entrepreneurs, academics, and teachers the gambit. And all that time, it never occurred to me to tell any one of them how to conduct their profession. You know, I might have had a great deal to say about ethics and faithfulness to Christ in the professions, but I never said anything about how to operate them. And the reason is simple. I don't have the skills required to know what they knew. And furthermore, the people in those professions didn't expect me to know anything about their professions in order to minister to them. They expected me to know the Word of God well and to be able to apply it to their lives, to help them integrate, or as I like to put it, bleed faithfulness into all categories. I'd pray for them, I'd encourage them, I'd shepherd them, but I would not tell a medical doctor how to diagnose a disease. And it's this thing that seems so obvious to all of us that's odd about Jesus. You know, I know he's fully man, and as man, he labors with the limitations of humanity, but he's also fully God, and as the creator of all things, as God, he knows a great deal more about everything than any of us do. And so the passage we're about to study is a passage in which Jesus teaches a fisherman how to fish. Yeah, let's start to read Luke 5, 1 to 3. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, this account begins with the words, on one occasion. Now, we have to assume that by now, Jesus' ministry of preaching about the kingdom of God was, you know, taking on steam. And by now, people from all over Galilee had not only heard of him, but were anxious to hear and see him. And on the occasion Luke has in mind, Jesus is again at Capernaum. We assume he's been traveling as was his custom. He would come back to Capernaum, which was his base of operations. Crowds had gathered to hear him preach in an outdoor setting, a setting which was on the shore of what Luke calls the Lake of Gennesaret, which we also know as the Sea of Galilee. So on this occasion, says Luke, the crowd was pressing in to hear him, and we have to imagine that depending on the exact location and the kind of noises that people naturally make, people always wanted to make sure they were hearing him. So they're standing as close as they can. And so in order to solve this problem, Jesus notices that the local fishermen from Capernaum have anchored their boats and they're washing their nets. You know, it's hard work and sometimes, you know, it pays off. Other times it doesn't. The men were tough. They know what they're about. And not only when and where to fish, but also, you know, they gauge weather patterns. More than one fisherman has lost his life on this lake because of the unpredictable weather that's there. I mean, nonetheless, the last shift has been the night shift. And the men have dragged their nets, you know, out of the boats and they're now cleaning them. And during this time, the nets would be examined for tears and damage and they'd be subsequently fixed. These men had been fishing all night. 
So the fishermen are performing their tasks in the morning, and because of the crowd, Jesus gets into one of the boats, and he knows the owner of the vessel. It's Simon. You know, sometime earlier, he's been in his house. He's miraculously healed his mother-in-law. And so we suspect that not only do Simon and Jesus know each other, but they're at ease in each other's presence. And Jesus has no difficulty getting into his boat. And by this time, Simon is back, and Jesus asks him to push his boat out a ways into the water. And that would have prevented Jesus from being jostled by the crowds and created a bit of space. But as you know, water is a very good amplifier of sound. And from the boat, everyone on shore would have had no difficulty hearing Jesus at all. And so the boat really is the pulpit that Jesus uses. Here's a little aside here. Jesus is quite comfortable setting up his pulpit in any number of places. Yeah, he does teach in the local synagogues, but he does a good deal of open-air preaching as well. You know, those of you who know the story of the English revivals that came, you know, during the preaching of George Whitfield and John Wesley, you might remember that it was Whitfield who had convinced Wesley to abandon only preaching inside of church buildings, rather taking it out of doors to where the people were. And there Wesley observed cold dust covered miners who may have not been comfortable inside a church building, listening in the outdoors as they heard the gospel from Whitfield, and many of them began to weep as they were convicted of their sins and of the mercy that was offered to them in Christ, that the tears that flowed down their cheeks ran a channel down their cold, blackened faces, and witnessing that turned Wesley into one of the greatest outdoor evangelists of all times. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, had no difficulty leaving the walls of the synagogue and going to the open air where the size of the crowd could be any size. And the impact of his teaching was not diminished by the outdoors. It may have been that, you know, some time ago when the synagogue of Capernaum heard him preach that they remarked that they had never, you know, heard such authoritative preaching before. I mean, people are held spellbound as he preaches about repentance, about the kingdom of God, about the end of the age, and the call of God to enter into the kingdom. That is, the impact is not lessened at all because he's out in the open with boundless distractions. The distractions, they all go away. And just like in the synagogue, people lose track of the time and all of their other concerns. And instead, they're spellbound by what this man is saying. Now, I began by saying that during the years in which I preached, I never pretended to know more about the professions than the professional men and the women in my congregation. But it's right here when things, shall we say, get a bit strange. And I say that because one of the people listening to Jesus that day was the owner of the boat in which Jesus was standing. So Jesus is now done. He's dismissed the crowd. But we can imagine that a great many of them have remained. And so it would seem normal at this point that Jesus would have asked Peter to push out the boat into the deep. You'd think that he just wants a rest from the crowd. But in fact, Jesus has something else in mind. He's going to teach Peter how to fish. So let's read Luke 5, 4 to 7. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. 
since it would seem that Peter, as well as the others, had been fishing through the night, and then upon arriving to the shore, they would have, you know, washed their nets immediately, and hence Jesus, as he uses Simon's boat, would have been preaching in the morning, and I'm assuming the morning is now gone, and the men who have been fishing all night, you'd expect them to be weary, and they're ready to get some sleep. Nonetheless, Peter does what Jesus commands and puts out his boat in the middle of the lake. And then the command, let down your nets. Now here, there's something we don't actually catch in the English, but it's easily seen in the Greek. Put out into the deep, that's a singular command, and it's directed to one man, Simon. Then the second command, let down your nets, that command is in the plural. Clearly, there are others in the boat, and it may be that the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, are also in that boat, and maybe there are others. Now, notice how different Simon's response is than we might have expected. Well, the first part of the response is predictable. I mean, he protests. We've been at this all night, he says, and last night we were snookered. We came home empty. Right now, the fishing doesn't look that good. And we might have expected him to say, look, I know you were a carpenter for some time, and you're good at building houses, yeah, and if I were building a house, I'd be listening to you, but now we're fishing, and you've got nothing to say about that. That's not what he says. He says, rather, at your word, I will let down my nets. I assume that means you show me exactly where and when, and at the very moment you say so, I'm going to let down my net. You know, what inspires that response? So let's review what we already know. Peter, or Simon, has been there in the synagogue when the demoniac had cried out, and with a single command, that demon had come out. Something they had all feared had cried out in terror and had fled from Jesus. No one had ever seen anything like that before. And Peter was watching as Jesus had instantly healed his mother-in-law, so much so that her energy and vitality didn't gradually come back. It was instantaneous. That was amazing. And he had watched in awe on that night as Jesus had healed every single person in his city. And Peter must have already come to a conclusion. Show me when and where, Jesus, and as soon as you say so, and when you say now, that's exactly where I'm going to let down my net. I mean, after all, you seem to command all of nature. And then instantly, as he lets down his net, the nets are swarming with fish. This is a Back to the Bible, Bible teaching you can trust. Well, it certainly has been a blessed week so far at Kingston Keswick 2024, taking place at the Boulevard Baptist Church with Back to the Bible's Dr. John Newfeld as the main speaker. Tonight is Youth Night and the speaker will be Reverend Dr. Adjuland Ferdinand with special guests John Mark Wigan and Rhoda Isabella. Today is the last of the lunch hour meetings, which start at 12.15. Reverend Napoleon Black will be at the Jamaica Theological Seminary, Reverend Leslie Pinnock at the Mona Baptist Church, Reverend Adenir Jones at the Webster Memorial Church, Reverend Mark Dawes at the Bethel Baptist Church, Reverend Horace Bennett at the Waltham Park New Testament Church, and Reverend Dexter Johnson at the East Queen Street Baptist Church. Tomorrow, Saturday, January 27, will be the men's gathering, which will be held at the Guardian Group Head Office, Seminar Room, 
located at 12 Trafalgar Road in New Kingston, starting at 8 a.m. sharp. Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld will be sharing on expository preaching, after which there will be a panel discussion. Space is limited, and if you haven't yet done so, then please register today to attend the event. To register for the men's gathering, please call 876-809-7464. That's 876-809-7464. Also tomorrow will be the women's gathering starting at 10.30 a.m. and the children's ministry starting at 3 p.m., both happening at the Boulevard Baptist Church. And then we look forward to seeing you for the closing service of Kingston Keswick 2024 with Dr. John Newfeld this Sunday, January 28, starting at 7 p.m. at the Boulevard Baptist Church. Now, as we prepare to get back to the Bible, let's rejoin Bible teacher John Newfeld with the conclusion of today's study. So what caused this to happen? I mean, there are those skeptics who might say, well, given enough time, fishermen do hit a jackpot. Just a matter of the odds. But please understand that these fishermen knew about the places where you fish, and they also knew the best time for success, and that time had bypassed them the night before. There were no big catches to be had now. Jesus is confident. Had he directed the pathway of the fish, had he at his word, just like when he had commanded that demoniac, had given a word to the fish and directed them into the net, well, it would seem so. But of course, the time for reflection on that had to wait. There was work to be done. Nets were in danger of breaking, and a catch like this was the catch of a lifetime. Other boats are called over. I mean, they're all hauling hard, and for a while, in the midst of the work, you know, I just suspect that they were smiling and probably laughing for joy. I mean, who had ever seen such a thing? But then they needed to exercise care, because the boats are now so loaded, they're in danger of sinking. They're coming home with a jackpot, but even in the midst of this action, they're also engaged in thinking. It seems that the preacher man knows their profession better than they do. Who could have imagined that? And where did this knowledge come from? Is there more to him than they simply know? And what happens next seems to have occurred while they're standing in the boat, knee-deep in fish. And I say that because it's only when we go to verse 11, we find that they finally get to land. And so, rather than at some peaceful place, no, no, what happens next happens in the middle of the chaos of the moment. The fish are in the boat. The boat's overloaded. The water line is too high. Nonetheless, there are some things that they need to address now. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So I want you to notice that until now, Luke, who's writing about this, has called Simon only Simon. It's not until later that Jesus is going to rename him Peter, meaning the rock, and point out that Peter will have a leadership role among Jesus' disciples as well as a leadership role in the church to come. Luke will record all of that. So until now, no one has ever called Simon Peter. But Luke right here begins already in his account to call him Simon Peter. That's because Luke is signaling that Simon is a called man, called by Jesus and named by Jesus to his destiny. So I think it's worthwhile to stop here and learn something. 
In the ancient Jewish world, no renowned rabbi ever called disciples. Disciples applied to a rabbi, just in the way that moderns might apply to a university or a college. Then after the disciple had applied and was accepted, he'd follow the rabbi for a while, and then the rabbi would make a decision as to whether or not to keep that disciple. Jesus, if we're to call him a rabbi, is different than everybody else. He's not accepting applications. He goes about choosing followers. And so by calling him not just Simon, but Simon Peter, Luke is signaling to us that even though Simon has never heard that name, Peter, before, he has a feeling that what has just happened in his boat has a lot more to do than with just providing him with a great catch in the moment. He knows something much greater is at stake. The Jesus who stands among him in the midst of the fish has designs on his life, and Simon instinctively reacts. He says, depart from me. You have power over demons and disease and fish. And you don't know me, and you don't want me. I'm profoundly sinful, and I'm completely unworthy of you. And often Bible students have wondered why Peter responds that way. I think the answer should be obvious. Peter's standing in the presence of holiness, and he knows it. He's been listening in his boat as Jesus was preaching, and he knows that the voice of God is speaking through this man, and there's something about holiness, and when you encounter it, you you know it. Holiness calls for a response. Remember Isaiah? He was in the temple. Unexpectedly, the temple was filled with smoke. The seraphim were flying through the temple as the glory of the Lord appears there. The seraphs are crying out, holy, not just once, three times, superlative holiness, that's what they cry. And at this, Isaiah cries out as well. But he doesn't cry out holy the way the seraphs did. Rather, he cries out, I am undone. I, he cries, am a man of unclean lips. How can I be your prophet, O holy God, when my lips are covered with filth? That's what Isaiah said. Holiness does that. Without encountering it, both Isaiah and Simon would never have been overwhelmed by their own sin. Well, the same is true with us today. If you've never encountered holiness, no doubt you're convinced that you're not unclean at all. But when a person who's lived in the shadows suddenly encounters the direct light of the sun for the first time, it's blinding so that the sinful man or woman, when encountering holiness, is overwhelmed at the lack of holiness and the deep uncleanness, the many transgressions in their lives, that deep, unacceptable rebellion that lies in their heart. They see holiness in God, and they see filth in themselves, and they cry out. And that's Simon's response, standing knee-deep in fish that day. I think he says, this has been done for me, this load of fish, and I think you're calling me, but I am at this moment, as you look at me, overwhelmed by who I am. Please, he begs, depart from me. Don't call me. I am unacceptable. One more thing before we move on. Notice what Simon calls Jesus. He calls him Lord. Now, the word Lord can simply be a title of respect, but it can be a title for God. And I I don't think that Peter yet knows that Jesus is God come in human flesh. That, That revelation is for later. But Peter has grasped that he understands that there is standing in his boat a manifestation of God in some form. He's standing on holy ground, even as Moses stood on holy ground when he stood at the burning bush. So we continue to read Luke 5, 9, and 10. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. 
You know, the first word in, in our passage, the word for, it can also be translated because. That word means that the reason why Peter was overwhelmed by his sin was because he had taken so many fish. Now, at first glance, you know, that seems you know, disappointing. I mean, we might say, you know, wasn't it because of the miracles of Jesus or his powerful preaching? You mean you're aware of your sin because you're standing knee deep in fish and the boat is at the waterline? That's it? But notice that was not just true of Peter. It was true of the two brothers, James and John, who also became disciples. You know, John, of course, we know he's the author of the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, also the book of Revelation. John also has a calling on his life, and he has an awareness now that Christ is calling him. And James, well, James was to become the first disciple to be martyred. Yeah, he didn't know the role that Christ was calling him to play. Now, he would play the role of the first of the twelve who would say, Jesus is more important than life itself. So there are the men, hands dripping with fish and slime and everything else, and the three men are staring at Jesus, not knowing what lies before him, but knowing that the fish in this boat means something far more significant than the fish in this boat. I imagine the three men have a sense that the one who knows their profession better than they do The man who commands the fish, this man, is about to change their lives forever. And all they can think about is how great at such a moment is their own sin and just how unworthy they are of being this man's disciples. And then come the words that these three men would always remember. Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Let me put it in words we understand. Jesus is saying, you've just seen a catch that's bigger than you've ever had, that's exceeded your wildest expectations. So also will be the catch of men and women whom you will catch for the kingdom. You think you can't do that, but I say, don't be afraid. If I know your profession better than you do, think of how much more I know about catching men and women for the kingdom of God than you know. Now is not the time to withdraw from me because of your sin and your inadequacies. Now is the time to take me at my word. I know what I'm doing when I'm calling you. And then we go to Luke 5.11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Remember? Yeah. These were married men with families and children. They had a business. They had people waiting on them. But they came to the shore, they sold off their catch, they locked up their boats, and they simply said, we're following him. At the height of their greatest catch, they thought that the call of this man named Jesus was more than anything else they'd ever been called to do. Without any other promise, they believed that Jesus knew his business, and they left everything to follow him. By the way, do you know Jesus does know his business? And what a pleasure it is when we leave everything to follow Him. Thanks, Dr. John. You know, we're all unworthy when it comes to representing Christ. And yet, He still has a purpose for us. Should we allow our perception of being unworthy to demotivate us from serving Him? It's a funny thing. Some of us do. And uh, some of us don't, let me put it that way. I mean, some of us recognizing that we're so unworthy, that's what motivates us. Isn't that interesting? And others, maybe it's because we thought we should attain to a higher standard. And, and that, by the way, is, I think, driven by our own pride and deceit. 
you know, I could get to the stage where I could, you know, be worthwhile to God. Um, but those of us who have come to recognize how deeply broken and fallen and sinful we actually are, recognize there is nothing we offer the Master at all. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And then in wonder, in wonder, our Lord takes these worthless vessels and makes them worthy to serve Him. That's a miracle. Thanks for joining us today here on Back to the Bible, brought to you by Back to the Bible Broadcast Jamaica, in a partnership with listeners who give in support of this ministry. Our office is located at shop number 22, Hagley Park Plaza, Kingston 10. Our office hours are from Mondays through to Fridays from 8.30 a.m. through to 4 p.m. We can be contacted via email at backtothebibleministry at gmail.com. Our office number is 876-926-5765 and our cell and WhatsApp number is 876-337-6295. To listen to this study again or some of our previous studies, they are available in our free mobile app along with other Bible engagement material. Just look for BTTB Jamaica in your app store. That's BTTB Jamaica. You can also listen and download our studies from other podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Be sure to look for Back to the Bible Jamaica. Well, the weekend is here and... As always, we encourage you to be in church, fellowshipping with believers and studying God's Word. And of course, we look forward to seeing you for the closing night of Kingston Keswick, Sunday, January 28, 7 p.m. at the Boulevard Baptist Church. And then, next week, we invite you to join us as Bible teacher John Newfeld continues in our series, A Firm Grip on the gospel. That's next week, right here on Back to the Bible Jamaica, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.